Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter six, verses one through eight. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Many of you played this game in your pool growing up. If you have children today, you've probably watched them play this game in a pool, but most of you probably have no idea who Marco Polo is. His Italian mother named him Mark after the gospel writer, hoping that he would be a man who would tell the gospel. But 13th century Europeans couldn't believe all the tales that Marco Polo told. When he was mere 17 years old, he launched out into this epic journey and landed in China. He was the first European that went into China and recorded his uh, experience, and it was quite an experience. When he got there, he became a favorite of uh, the most powerful person on the earth at the time, Kublai Khan. He became uh, really one of his kind of right, right-hand officers. And it was there in Kublai Khan's empire that he saw things that weren't even possible in, in, in Europe. The cities in the empire dwarfed European cities, made them look like little villages. The, the palace of Kublai Khan was enormous. The, the banquet hall itself where he would host guests could hold 6,000 diners at once, each eating off a golden plate. Because he was an officer in Khan's court, he traveled to places no European would see for another 500 years. He saw the world's first printed money. He saw and experienced the power of gunpowder. And the list goes on and on. It would be the 18th century before Europe would manufacture as much steel as China was producing in the 13th century when Marco Polo was there at Kublai Khan's right hand. And after serving for 17 years, he finally decided to come back home to Venice. And when he got back home to Venice, his family and his friends and even his family priests demanded that he recant of the lies that he was telling of his adventures in this place called China. In fact, even on Marco Polo's deathbed, 
his family and friends and, and his family priest demanded that he recant of these lies and he gasped for breath and said, I haven't even told you half of what I saw. About 2,000 years before Marco Polo wrote his adventures in what was called the Travels of Marco Polo, which, of course, history proved that everything he was sharing was true, that it was everything he said was as is. About 2,000 years earlier, a man by the name of Isaiah recorded a vision, a stunning vision of God that we read in Isaiah chapter 6. And the vision of God is so stunning that it has over the centuries resulted in two responses. The one response is just disbelief, that it's some faraway tale that Isaiah told. And the other response is people through the centuries who have been awakened by what they see and hear in this vision that Isaiah recorded. It's a a vision that changed Isaiah's life. It thoroughly transformed him. And it's a vision that he recorded, divinely inspired by God to change you and to transform you. This is a vision that has the power to awaken you when you understand what it exactly is. How does God awaken you? How does he awaken you? First, we're going to see that he awakens you with a vision of his greatness, a vision of his greatness. This vision of Isaiah's doesn't arise out of a vacuum. It came out of or came in a historical setting, and the setting is put forth in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, King Uzziah died in 740 B.C., he, was, he sought after God. He was faithful to God in the beginning of his reign. But towards the end of his reign, he didn't finish well at all. Second Chronicles 26, 16 tells us that he became proud as the king of God's people. That he was struck with leprosy. And that he finished his life in isolation and loneliness and darkness And God's people followed suit with their king. God's people descended into a deep season of darkness, a deep season of of sin that Isaiah describes at the end of chapter 5, verse 30. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Darkness had set in on the king, Darkness had set in on God's people. And this only highlights the beauty of what we read in the second half of verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled 
the temple. Isaiah found great comfort as, as the earthly king died and as the nation descended into darkness, Isaiah finds great comfort in this heavenly king who is on his throne over it all, over the darkness, over the chaos. God's sovereign. That's the vision that Isaiah received. There's hope because they weren't defined ultimately by an earthly king that fell apart at the end of his reign. And by the people who were falling into darkness, Isaiah saw hope. He saw a God who was on his throne. And we see that even in verse two, as we see the description of the seraphim who were just angelic beings. It says they had six wings. Note what the wings were covering. The wings were covering their eyes, not their ears, because these seraphim would hear what the Lord commanded and then perfectly carry out his commands. Notice this, the wings covered their feet. That was symbolic to say they weren't gonna launch out with their own intentions or their own strategy. They would only do what the Lord commanded. God was absolutely sovereign. And these angelic beings existed to serve him and to do exactly what he said. Isaiah received the vision of a God who is absolutely sovereign over darkness and over chaos. And if you have darkness and chaos in your life, this is a vision that you need. But not only was God sovereign, Isaiah saw a God who was, was radiating his glory. Right? Verse three, and one called to another and said, this is the seraphim calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That threefold repetition, holy, 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 appears nowhere else in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy is a repetition that appears throughout the scriptures, but it's the only threefold repetition there is because God is absolutely set apart in his holiness. Now, we, we resonate with that when we think of a holy God and sinful people, that clearly God is set apart from us as broken, sinful people. But note here that God's even set apart from the sinless, perfect, angelic beings. And you read of their description, their magnificent, their beauty, and even God in his holiness is set apart from that. More grand, more beauty, more holiness, more majestic. God is holy, holy, holy. And note what else the seraphim were saying to each other. The whole earth is full of his glory. That can also read, may his glory fill the whole earth. God was never alone. God was never lacking in the blazing fellowship of the Trinity. God is full and happy, was full and happy. It begs the question, why would a God like that create anything? Well, he didn't create to remedy a lack in himself. He created to spread his goodness. God's delight is so great in being God that in his exuberance, he spills over into his created world. He created a world that would just absolutely spill his glory over into that world. 
Created reality is a continuous explosion of the glory of God. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, in order that we finite beings may apprehend the emperor, he translates his glory into multiple forms, into stars, woods, waters, beasts, and the body, bodies of men. The vastness of our universe gives a glimpse into the glory of our God. Do you know that if the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the continent of North America, our solar system would fit in a coffee cup. In 1977, they sent out two spacecraft called the Voyager, Voyager 1 and 2, speeding away from Earth. They've been going for over four decades. Voyager 1 is now 14.6 billion miles away from Earth. And when scientists beam a command to the, to the spacecraft, that's how they know how far away it is. When they beam a command at the speed of light, it takes 21 hours for it to reach the spacecraft. The neighborhood of our solar system, the neighborhood of our sun, is vast, but it's only even one of several hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, and they estimate the Milky Way, there may be another billion galaxies like it. The greatness, the glory, the majesty of our God exploding, exploding in our created world. How does God awaken you? He begins as he did with Isaiah, with this vision of his greatness. But what do we do when we hear those kind of statistics and that kind of uh, reality? What do we do when we hear that and just kind of yawn at it? I mean, what if that doesn't awaken us? Wow, that's a big universe. And what if we just kind of respond with this yawn? What if our very capacity to respond to God is dead. You see, God awakens you with a vision of his greatness, but that's not enough. He awakens you not only with a vision of his greatness, but with a vision of your sin, of your sinfulness. And that's what we see Isaiah do here. He sees the vision of God's greatness and then immediately, he turns to his sin. Immediately, he turns to his sin. You know, I, there's a story that author Paul Tripp tells about an experience he had with his youngest son. He took his youngest son to uh, the National Art Galleries in Washington, D.C., and he couldn't wait. He was so excited because he was going to go see this just amazing artistic beauty, and he couldn't wait for his son to see it. And he says he, he, he got into one of the galleries, and, and he, he saw this beauty that was so amazing that it had him on the verge of tears, and his son was standing next to him complaining, yawning, and asking when they were going to go home. And then Tripp goes on. He would say this. His son was surrounded by glory but saw none of it. 
He stood in the middle of wonders, but was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but he saw nothing. Boy, if that doesn't describe our condition, our eyes work well. We can see the created world, but oftentimes our heart is just dead. Dead to the reality of such a glorious, majestic God that is seen through the created world. Why? Well, awakening doesn't just come through a vision of God's greatness. It comes through a vision of your sin. Isaiah turns to his sin in verse 5 and said, Woe to me, or woe is me, for I am lost. Do you realize these are the very first words that Isaiah speaks in this book? He says, woe is me. In the previous chapter, we looked at the six woe to those statements that were prophetic denouncing of sin on God's people. Notice what Isaiah does here. He takes those prophetic curses and he turns it on himself. He says, woe is me. He owned his sin and he agreed with the consequences. He owned his sin, and he agreed with the consequences. How often is ownership of sin the first words out of your mouth? And if you don't know how to answer that and you're married, just ask your spouse. Your spouse will help you answer that. How often are the first words out of our mouth ownership of sin? Not often. Not often at all. In fact, the first words that tend to come out of our mouths are, excusing or blame-shifting or defending or justifying. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. That means Understanding how deeply in debt you are to God and understanding there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to redeem yourself or save yourself. Being poor in spirit means believing that God owes you nothing. And that all the gifts you have, all the resources you have are a gift of his grace. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. But, More often than not, we are what I would call middle class in spirit. We're middle class in spirit. We believe we've worked hard. We believe we've sacrificed a ton. And therefore, God owes us. Or we believe that our resources or our success, whatever it may be, is a product of our hard work, our wisdom, our discipline. That's what it means to be middle class in spirit. Awakening never comes to those who are middle class in spirit. Awakening only comes to those who are poor in spirit. To those who are poor in spirit. Isaiah was poor in spirit 
because he owned his sin and didn't make excuses. And the reason he owned his sin is because he had the right standard that he was measuring his sin against. Notice second half of verse five. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It's because Isaiah saw the king. He saw this holy, holy, holy God completely set apart from him in his holiness. That he then saw his sin for what it was. You see, Isaiah, when his eyes weren't on the king, had joined right in with the community. Notice what he says. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Isaiah is saying, hey, my speech has been unclean, just with the whole community has been unclean. I blended right in. It's kind of the, everybody's doing it. Can it really be that bad? I mean, the entire church is kind of doing it. Like, is it really that bad? That's what had happened. Isaiah was a man of unclean lips amongst the people that were unclean in their speech. You know, it's, it's what we would talk about when we talk about cultural or systemic sin. It's a sin that it's just, it defines the whole group and so the group just loses any sensitivity to it. It's like if you were sitting in a room with a group of people and the, the lights were on bright and then over the next several hours, somebody just took the dimmer switch and slowly dimmed the light so subtly that you couldn't tell it was happening until somebody walked in the room and went, why is it so dark in here? That's what happened to Isaiah. When he looked at the king, the Lord of hosts, at the holiness of God, suddenly his sin was revealed and he owned it. And notice he didn't elevate himself above others. He didn't say, hey, I've got unclean lips, but man, it's not quite as bad as those people. He put himself in the same place as everyone else. You know, self-righteousness, which is elevating yourself above others, is a surefire way to kill any kind of awakening that the Spirit of God would bring. Using the failure of others to feel better about yourself. And let me just pause there. I don't care who you are, and I'm throwing myself in this crew. Every one of us uses the failure of others to feel better about ourselves. You do it subtly, you do it at a heart level. That's what self-righteousness is called. Using the failure of others to make yourself feel better about you will leave your spirit dead. Will not awaken you to the glory and to the greatness of God. Isaiah didn't compare himself with others. And the reason he didn't is because he wasn't looking at others as the standard. He wasn't looking at people around him for the standard of what's good, bad, right, or wrong. He was looking at the king. He was looking at the Lord of hosts. He was looking at a holy God. And he saw that he was sinful and everyone else had fallen woefully short. During the Great Awakening, which was a period in our country's history where there was a massive movement of the Holy Spirit to bring dead people spiritually to life in Christ. It was during that great awakening that Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher and a pastor, did a lot of his work. He was uh, presiding over leading a prayer meeting of 800 men 
And it was in that prayer meeting that, some, that a woman had submitted a message that, that got to Jonathan Edwards, and it, and it basically said, can you pray for my husband? Can you pray for my husband? He has become unloving. He's become prideful. He's become difficult. Jonathan Edwards read this message in private, and then he decided to do something pretty bold. He thought maybe this husband is in this prayer meeting. So he read the message to the group of 800 men and said, if, if this is you, would you raise your hand? We want to pray for you. 300 men raised their hand. 300 men owned the sin of being unloving, of being prideful, of being difficult in their marriage. That's poverty of spirit. That is poverty of spirit. How does God awaken you? He gives you a vision of his greatness. Gives you a vision of your sin. But then he gives you a vision of his grace. And let me just tell you, it's a threefold vision. And if you only have this, the first two parts of this vision, vision of God's greatness, and a vision of your sin, you're in a terrible predicament. That's a bad place to be because there's no way out of that. And that's why you need the third piece of this vision that Isaiah receives, which is a vision of his grace. Verses six to seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. This is beautiful having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, what is the burning coal? Well, it was taken from the altar which in the Old Testament, the altar was the place where God's justice was satisfied through the offering of a substitute, the blood of a sacrificial animal. It was the altar where this symbolic taking away of sin happened. And so this burning coal represented all that the substitute and what the substitute did to take away sin meant. So for us, this burning coal represents the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And I want you to notice where this coal touches Isaiah. It touched him on his lips which was the very place of his confessed need. Isaiah confessed the sin of unclean lips, of unclean speech. 
And so this coal touched him in the very place of his confessed sin and took away his guilt. Jesus did not die for general people and general sins. He died for particular people and particular sins. Which means that when you turn to Jesus Christ and you confess your particular sin to him, he knows your sin well. Not because he's committed it, but because he took it from you and carried it to the cross where it died under God's wrath. Your guilt has been removed. What sin is most damning to your conscience? What sin haunts your memory? What sin are you terrified to speak in detail about to God or to someone else? Jesus knows that sin. Not because he committed it, but because he took it from you and carried it to the cross where it died under God's wrath. Your guilt has been taken away. And what effect did this have on Isaiah? What effect did this have on Isaiah? Verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Isaiah's lips had been unleashed. His lips had been chained to his complacency, chained to his sin. And when he saw that that sin had been removed and his guilt had been removed, his lips became unleashed and he proclaimed the goodness of God and the grace of God through a coming Messiah for Isaiah. In verse 7, When Isaiah is told your sin atoned for, that verb atoned for, it means to pay a ransom. It's the price that justice requires. To pay a ransom means to free someone from slavery. Isaiah was freed from the slavery of his sin. He was freed from what was keeping him. You know, I, I would imagine... that Isaiah's profession of faith was probably pretty orthodox. And by that, I mean it was probably right. Probably said the right things in his profession of faith. But he was empty. He was lifeless. He had little awareness in his heart of how great God was, how Horrific his sin was and how amazing God's grace was. He hadn't experienced it until God brought this vision to him and his tongue was loosed. What silences followers of Christ? 
Every one of us knows there's some silencing that goes on in our lives. What silence is a follower of Christ? Certainly self-absorption. We're so absorbed with self. That's a given. But more than that, a guilty conscience. Guilty fears that God's against us. I mean, how can I go proclaim the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the amazing nature of his forgiveness in Christ when I am ridden with guilt and I'm pretty convinced that God's disappointed with me? That's what silences Christians. That's what had Isaiah silenced until he received this vision. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. A guilty conscience, liberated by grace, awakens us and unleashes our tongue to speak and proclaim the goodness of God because our guilt has been taken away and we're not carrying it. Joy Davidman was a Jewish-American atheist poet. She married another writer named Bill. After marrying Bill, after Bill's death, she would go on to marry C.S. Lewis. But while she was married to this writer, Bill, and functioning purely as an atheist, she said this about her atheism. She said, of course, I thought atheism was true, meaning atheism, there, there is no God. But I hadn't given quite enough attention to developing the proof of it. Someday when the children grow older, I'd work it out. Eventually, Joy met Jesus. Here's how it happened. Her husband, Bill, was a workaholic. He was an alcoholic, and he was unfaithful. And one day, he called Joy from his New York office and said frantically, I'm having a nervous breakdown, and then hung the phone up. And that began a day where she began frantically calling, trying to get in touch with him to no avail. And she finally, by the time night came, she realized, I'm just gonna have to wait this out and see if he turns up dead or alive. So she said she put her children to sleep and she waited in silence and in some desperation. And this is what she said happened. For the first time in my life, I felt helpless. For the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not calm after all, that I was not the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. All my defenses all the walls of arrogance and cockiness and self-love behind which I'd hid from God went down momentarily and God came in. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness, 
a person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play. And I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from sleep. Are you awake? Have you seen the greatness of God? Have you seen the horror of your sin and helplessness and owned it? Have you tasted the grace of Jesus Christ who took that particular sin that haunts your memory, who took it from you? where it died under God's wrath to take away your guilt. Have you tasted that? If not, I invite you to Jesus. I invite you to him to turn to him and watch the chains come off and watch you be unleashed to come alive like Joy Davidman would talk about in her conversion, to come alive to the glory of God and to his goodness and to proclaim it to those around you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this vision. This vision that you gave Isaiah, it's a stunning vision. And you gave it to Isaiah and divinely inspired him to write it down that we could read it. Today, nearly 2,700 years later, and see a vision of who you are, who we are, and a vision of your grace that changes us and sets us free. Oh, Father, would you awaken us? Would you bring us to life if there's, there are those here that, that have never been awakened to your goodness and to your glory? Would you do that by your Spirit? Would they turn to you, Jesus? Because you are our living hope. You're our only hope in a world where we, we experience loss, devastating loss, that we feel like has, is ruining us and wrecking our lives. We're all aware of that. Some of us have experienced it acutely, recently. Oh, Father, would you give us the grace, and it demands your grace to see your gracious hand in that to wake us up to your glory, to who you are, and to a life of hope in your son, Jesus. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.